and welcome to Cage Fighting, answering the big questions in film. Andy Gillard here again. Hello, I hope you're keeping safe. How are we doing, guys? It's Matt Guy here. Hope you're all all right. And it's Stu Hall, echoing them comments. <laughs> very, serious, all... yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very serious, Stu. Very serious for very serious films to review this. Well, that's true, that's true, mate, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. How are you all keeping after this uh, this week? We all good? Really good, mate. Really good of you. Yeah, not bad, thank you. Stu, are you okay, mate? Yeah, we're all getting back to normal now, so slowly but surely. Yeah. So, I need to give a peek behind the curtains here, lads, and admit a bit of a mere culpa. Basically, I did a list of film pairings for, for all of the Nick Cage films, as you two know, but obviously the audience don't. I try and find a loose, tenuous link between the two films and bundle them together for the picture pod. This week, The Rock and Con Air, uh, I paired those because they're both directed by Michael Bay. Or so I thought. <laughs> After doing the absolute least amount of work I should have done originally, uh, it turns out that Michael Bay only directed The Rock, and it was actually someone called Simon West who did Con Air. Uh, apparently Simon West is famous from, for doing the Rick Astley Never Gonna Give You Up video. Which That's I why I know. loved it so much. There we go. Yeah, originally it was going to be about them. But uh, obviously we're going to have to change it. And the, the tenuous link in this is that he's in jail in both of them. So I think that's good enough to uh, to carry on with, with what we've got planned. So, yeah, I think let's start with The Rock. You sure you're ready for this? I'll do my best. Your best? Losers always whine about their best. Winners go home and fuck the prom queen. Carla was the prom queen. Right, I've got nothing funny to say about The Rock. This film is fucking superb and I will hear nothing bad said about it. I loved this movie. Matt, were you all in on this? <laughs> I'm all in, baby. Um, no, I re- you know what? I really, really enjoyed it. Um, I know we're going to do a deep dive on it, but and I think the, re- the reason why I really enjoyed it after watching... The better than I thought National Treasures was Nicolas Cage shows more charisma in the first scene of The Rock than he does in the entire <laughs> in the entirety of National Treasure, uh, one and two. Um, and I just knew we were going to be off to a good start. Um, but no, I really, really enjoyed it. Um, and I'm really looking forward to doing a deep dive on it. Right, Stuart, what are your thoughts? Your initial yeah, as thoughts? Soon, as soon as he had a guitar, I was sold. It's, <laughs> it's just, it's exactly the kind of film that I love unapologetically love these kind of nonsense action films and it was a lot better than I remembered so I'm really looking forward to this fantastic right okay so the film starts we're at a military funeral and General Hummel played by Ed Harris is laying flowers at a grave apologising for what he's about to do did you gentlemen see the name on the grave I did not Barbara Hummel and above Barbara Hummel he said his wife not beloved wife, his wife. <laughs> <laughs> like that could have been anybody in there, but no, it was his wife. Okay, okay. Just, maybe, just she was case. Ev- maybe she was everyone's wife. <laughs> maybe. That was the problem. Maybe. But yeah, I thought this is the level we're at, like early doors. Brilliant. So General Hummel, he visits the naval base and a group of highly trained individuals break in to steal a chemical weapon. To demonstrate how dangerous it is, they break a vial of it and one of their faces melts. It was kind of like the Indiana Jones with the, the melting face of the Nazi. I, I quite like that bit. I thought it was great. 
Yeah, I did as well. I thought it was it set the scene for the severity of the of the of the plot device really, and kind of what they were going to do with it. And I liked how it was no it was no bullshit. Lock the door. We're going to leave the man behind. There's no nothing else we can do. And then the really half-assed, I'm sorry, in the window. <laughs> um, no, I, I I thought it like, kind of set the scene really well. It's when I, I was wrongly remembering chemical weapons. For some reason, I couldn't get out of my head who framed Roger Rabbit. And, <laughs> and obviously, it was nothing like that. So it, it, it was, that still haunts me, though. That Roger Rabbit. When he dips the cartoon in the, uh, I yeah. can't remember what the stuff's called, but the toxic waste still haunts me to this day. The noise that they make as well. Oh, it's terrifying. Terrifying. <laughs> uh, so cut to, we see our hero, Stanley Goodspeed, in his office getting excited about a Beatles vinyl. <laughs> Goodspeed and his little bitch go to inspect a box. There may be some killer gas. They set the gas off and it starts to eat their suits and there's a bomb about to explode. Now, surely the suits that they're wearing should be able to not corrode when a bit of gas touches them. <laughs> These are supposed to be designed to stop anything and everything. Mm-hmm. Bit of a, uh, a flaw in the design there, I think. Well, I want to question, you know, I don't think we should be questioning the validity of this film because vinyls do sound better. I want to point that right out there now. I want to, it's, oh, the purest, it's the purest form of... <laughs> so I think, you know, no, but you are right. Those suits and then... I know it was it was explained later on in the film, but the whole inject yourself in the heart thing. So this this suit, it could be pierced and it could be corroded. <laughs> so it's like, where did they get these suits? Well, this isn't this is an adequate PPE. Oh, what's what's going on? From Wish, yeah. Wish suits. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but I mean that was literally the only reason to get that scene in was to get the call back with the piercing of the heart with the the massive needle at the end. In 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 terms of that chamber, but I really liked the um, the the odd like first person view that they had in 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 that segment. Um, and what I also really liked is they didn't leave it until the last second for the countdown. Yeah. Um, it's 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 obviously so overused where we're going to be really tense until the very last second, and then the hero will save the day. And I thought it was just a nice little touch that they didn't just cheapen it and insult our intelligence by. Because they will do it, they will insult our intelligence <laughs> enough, but they didn't do it on this occasion um, by having it like the last second for the countdown. I thought that was going to be a thing of, because he, he's got it before the last second now, it's going to come back and hit us later and he is the last second. Mm. I, mm. I thought it was a bit of foreshadowing. And I, uh, after watching so many of these things, I thought that's exactly what's going to happen. And obviously... Yeah, yeah. So Stan, he manages to defuse the bomb and save the day. Immediately, we know that Goodspeed is a scientific genius and works hard under pressure. And his trainee is a little bitch. <laughs> we then move to meet Stan's girlfriend. I believe, yes, they were girlfriends. They weren't married. That's right. Uh, where she tells him that she's pregnant after he's just said it's an act of cruelty to bring a child into this world. <laughs> Which I thought was quite an amusing, uh, amusing introduction. I thought that was very good. And off to Alcatraz we go. Uh, a group of day trippers gets kidnapped by General Hummel uh, whilst they're there at Alcatraz on The Rock. Apparently, Ed Harris had the giggles on this day and kept laughing at the actor who was playing the tour guide. <laughs> and I think if I was the tour guide actor, I would be shitting myself that whatever I was doing was making someone who legitimately looks insane like Ed Harris laugh. <laughs> I would assume it'd be my fault, not Ed Harris's, but keep laughing. We find out that 
Hummel is doing this because the government left men to die in a ditch and disavowed them with no compensation paid to their families. He wants the government to own their shit, basically, and pay for their mistakes. So straight away, I'm thinking, is Hummel actually a good guy here? He's doing this for the right reason, surely. Mm, well, this is a this is a later point I wanted to discuss, um, but you are right, and it, and it links a little bit into Ed Harris's performance in National Treasure Two for me. But I'm going to I'm going to stay strong for now. We'll come back to that. Yeah, <clears throat> Stu. I was, I was going to say exactly the same yeah. thing then about how he's certain arcs of character. Uh, what I did like though, obviously at this point, is where we also meet his mercenary army, and I think if you're going to make a mercenary army of badasses. You're going to want Ed Harris. He's always playing the villainous hard bastards. David Morse. He's always playing a police or detective, CIA, FBI. John C. McGinley, platoon, other workers, police or detectives. Gregory Spore leader, sorry. He was the dude with the very 90s haircut with the the curtains. I had a look on IMDb. He's another one. He's got a ton of work in army roles. Bokeem Woodbine and Tony Todd. I mean, they've got the fucking Candyman on the their candy team. <laughs> well, if you're building an army of mercenaries, those are the guys you want to take in battle with you, surely. Uh, so we then get a five-minute exposition dump telling us that they've basically got a super poison. Uh, we then cut back to Stanley on the rooftop having sex with his girlfriend. Of course. When they were having sex, why was he going on about peach sorbet persuasion? <laughs> hey, well, don't, kink, I... don't kink shame now, man. We're not, we're not about kink shaming on this pod. Very true, very true. But that moment, I had to rewind it. I was like, what the fuck has he just said? Uh, and then, like, when she gets off him, she's still wearing underwear. She is. I, 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 like, I clocked that straight off. Like, that's weird. Mm, well, I don't know what he says about us, but, yeah, I did clock that as well, to be fair. <laughs> maybe, it, maybe it was a kind of uh, in-the-moment situation for him. One bam, Ma- thank you, ma'am. <laughs> yeah, we'll maybe. in this case. Yeah. And the, the peach sorbet is then says. <laughs> uh, so then we go and we discover that the suits at the Pentagon decide that they're going to tunnel into Alcatraz and take the rock from a group of highly motivated mercenaries. And to do that, they need a 70-year-old man who's been in jails, jail for at least 40 years. <laughs> and that would be John Mason, played by Sean Connery. Now, do you know who was originally offered the role of John Mason? Um. Oh. Okay. Give us a clue. Is it what? Is it of a similar kind of um golden, you know, golden era, sexy, all throughout his career kind of actor, or he's someone who's barely an actor. Oh, uh, Bruce Forsyth. <laughs> <laughs> he is an actor, but he's not known for acting as such. He's he's known for just appearing in films. He's not oh, a very good uh, actor. Hold on. Hold on. Um. Oh no. Um, what the? F- what's his name? Uh, the guy who run the National Rifle Association? No, it's not uh, Charlton Heston. No, okay. It's. Uh, I'll, I'll give Stuart another clue. He's someone whose best role is playing a cold-blooded machine killer. Peter Weller. Oh, no. Arnie. <laughs> it's Arnold Schwarzenegger. Really? Oh yeah, he was originally offered that role, and honestly, like. There's absolutely no way that he could have pulled that off with no. the same level of suaveness that uh, Sean Connery did. So I'm very glad that Arnie turned that down, if I'm honest. I've just realised that I've said Peter Weller in Ed Harris' film again. 
Yeah. <laughs> so this two weeks ago as well, like confusing the two of them. Yeah. There is something about them they do seem quite um, not interchangeable because they're both very good actors in their own right, but there is something that sort of links them somehow. Yeah, and it's not just because they're both bald either, and they're both white. It's, they've got there's an essence of them. Yeah. Very have, you, have, you, have you ever seen the the, um, the 24 series that's got Peter Weller in? He actually, he actually directs some of the episodes as well. Yeah. It's absolutely superb. Mm. No, I agree with that. He's, I, I do like him, but uh, he's almost like if you can't get Ed Harris, you get Peter Weller, I think. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so then we go to the interrogation room scene. I really like this scene. Yeah. It's where we finally get to see Stanley Goodspeed trying to play Bertie Big Bollocks. <laughs> Show he's the man and he's going to take none of this crap from, uh, from uh, John Mason. I, I loved that. And the acting from Cage in this is brilliant because you can see that he's playing a character who's got absolutely no confidence and no belief in what he's saying, but he's still saying it anyway. Yeah, it was just a really excellent like feeling out conversation between the two characters um, highlighted, uh, I think, when Sean Connery was um, or Sean Connery's character, I should say. Uh, said uh, a coffee no no I'm okay no 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 offer me a coffee <laughs> and they were like it was just it was just excellent like it was a really um it was a really good exchange uh, between like the wily veteran of crime and then a man blagging it um and I really enjoyed it It was one of the highlights of like the dialogue of the film for me it was the fact that he knew that he was blagging it as well and he, yeah, you yeah. could see he was trying mm. to push it as far as he possibly could to get him to slip up it, it just worked yeah, it was wonderful. And and the other thing I love in this is Womack. Yeah. I love it when he breaks through that window and sees it. I, I don't know why, but Womack. As with yeah. last week's question about some of our quotable films, Womack is one of my favourite quotes <laughs> for some really bizarre reason. Um, so then we move on and the... Oh, yeah. So when they get the line where um, Goodspeed is parrots the line of... You're on a need-to-know basis, and you don't need to know. I, I loved that because again, that tied in with this this character who doesn't really know what he's doing. He's not sure of himself, but he's trying to show that mm. this is how leaders act. Mm. I loved that. But then we move on to a scene which I don't like so much, if I'm perfectly honest, where they're in the hotel suite. The effeminate hairdresser. Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent, mate. Very, very. Not t- typecast isn't the word I want to use. Very nineties. It's very lazy, isn't it? Just to have yeah. um, uh, a, an effeminate. Let's let's call a spade a spade. They're making him out to be gay, barber, basically, or they're yeah. they're, they're, they're insinuating um, his sexuality, and it it just stood out like a sore thumb, didn't it? Yeah, um, he m- massively. He might as well have just gone full Kenneth Williams. It was. It was, <laughs> it was that it, level. Yeah. It was. It was that level of campus you like out of absolutely nowhere. <laughs> So I, I must admit, I, I didn't didn't enjoy that. I thought you could have done a lot better here, Michael. You really could have. Uh, and then we get to the bit where Mason throws Womack off the building. If that would 100% have ripped his arm off. Yeah. 100%. Like, this got to the point where on Friday night when I was watching this film, I then went down a YouTube rabbit hole of watching videos of people who've lost their limbs discussing how they lost their limbs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. Um, one girl said about how um, she tried to. She was on a boat and uh, an escape boat sort of flew off the back of it, and she grabbed on to try and hold it. And the speed at which she did it, it ripped it off, and it was a, a, like quite a small rope. 
which sounds very much like what was here with Mason when he dropped him because it was a very tight rope that was around his wrist and he dropped him fully. He didn't lower him. He dropped him. So that one, that was um, tugging at my suspension of disbelief a little bit there. All I can think about is that episode of The Simpsons when uh, I think it's like a Halloween um, episode where uh, Bart has his arm out the window and they say a boy lost his arm. And then he goes, and I was that boy, and he's just got this arm. <laughs> um, on, on that, on that, it's a bit of shower rope, isn't it? Like MacGyver shower rope, like just yeah. using anything that he can. Um, which are we led to believe it's the strongest rope imaginable, made out of unicorn <laughs> hair or something. Uh, so yeah, Mason escapes in this absolutely gorgeous-looking car chase scene through the streets of San Francisco. Uh, eventually, they get Mason back. Bay apparently claims that this session of the uh, of the car chase was the biggest clusterfuck of my filming career, to quote him directly. Could believe it. Well, I mean, I say that, but I mean that must have been before he made Transformers: Dark of the Moon, because that is the biggest clusterfuck <laughs> of his directing career. They then go off and they make their plans on how to infiltrate the Rock. I like how they show the difference here between Goodspeed and Mason. One guy wants to get into the belly of the beast and he's told no. And the other guy is told that he must, but he doesn't really want to. I thought that was a really good contrast between the two characters. Yeah, I'd agree. Um, I think they just play off each other really, really well anyway, throughout the whole film, like two completely different personalities and um, their kind of motives are obviously massively different. But I think... The bouncing off the two, and like you, th- you, if you were said to me, name a great pairing in film, I tell you what doesn't come to mind straight away Nick Cage and Sean Connery. But <laughs> I was really pleasantly surprised, like how those two bounced off each other. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you look at the um, the sheer ego levels as well that must have been on set at the same time, especially with Ed Harris as well. I know that they all together later on, but and like you say, I mean, for me, I thought is Sean Connery phoning this in, or is he just? Is he just being this cool? He oh, seems I think like he is that cool. Yeah, he just seems like he doesn't give a fuck at all. And he's just he's just playing it like that way. And he's, he's been in prison for that long. Well, illegally in prison um, for that long. And you think, well, what's he got to lose? Mm, yeah. And then you got, you got the other end of the spectrum of a scientist who don't know what he's doing. <laughs> it's... It's like you said, Matt, you wouldn't, you'd never in a million years put them two together no. and expect it to work. It does. It does, doesn't it? It wouldn't well, work I've, with Arnie. Oh, God, no. But I've read a story about Sean Connery. So I've, I think the reason I can say categorically he wasn't phoning this in is that Michael Bay was having troubles with the producers of the film. And he was called to a meeting where I think they were either going to sack him or give him a bollocking. And Sean Connery said, oh, can I come to this meeting? And Sean went along to the meeting and told the producers what for and said, you need to give this man the money he needs to make this film. So it does genuinely seem like Sean Connery was invested in this product. And I think that pays off in his performance. Another bit in this scene, um, when they're prepping to fly to the rock and the commander asks any questions, again, another stellar bit of acting from Cage. You see him open his mouth as if to say, I've got a question. And then all of a sudden he the words don't come out. It's like he's absolutely bricking it, but he knows that it's too late at this point and he's just got to go with it. So that's really well acted in that scene. And that guy is now breaking to the rock. Uh, they trip the sensor and all of the train seals get murdered. 
leaving only an OAP and a scientist to save the day. <laughs> I did think that that shower room massacre scene was really, really good, uh, really, really well done. Really, when they have the um, obviously the two parties who are, and I found this throughout the whole film that are still talking to each other like they're all in the army. Mm. Um, like you know, they were talking to each other. It really built the tension really well. You can see it's going to happen a mile off, so it's not like it's a payoff that we're not expecting. Um, but I thought they built the tension really, really well for, um, you know, on the surface, it's just kind of a, a popcorn action film. But they actually built tension um, to the point where yeah, you, you're starting to lean forward and you, you, your heart's starting to go a little bit, just thinking, oh, when's this going to absolutely um, get to boiling point? I think they did uh, you know, a fantastic job of that. And when he's there and he's saying, stop firing, stop firing. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Halfway through, we're all being absolutely slaughtered in a kind of... The honey trap more than anything else. They're, they're just sitting ducks right in the middle. Mm-hmm. And he's, you think, oh, this is hinting at something that we've seen a few weeks ago. <laughs> well, he, yeah, said, he says, doesn't he, he, he talks about um, that they've got the positional advantage over them and he gives them every opportunity to to stand down. Do you know what I mean? I'm not saying he's justified, but he gives them the opportunities too. And the, the, the only thing, it would have been good or maybe a bit more original if... if when like that rock hits the floor and then they turn around and think, you know, I just feel like we've seen that before, like, like a, like a misunderstanding that's caused this. I just, I, I don't know what I would have expected. Maybe somebody like with an itchy trigger finger, like, there was just, like shaking that pulls the trigger. Like we've seen that in, in other films as well. I don't mm. know, but I think overall they, they built a really good, um, a really good tense scene there. Did you think it was believable that the seals didn't drop their weapons. They knew they were in a Kobayashi Maru. It was a no-win situation. They didn't have the high ground. They were going to get slaughtered. Mm. Was it a, a case of rah-rah America? We don't submit. Yes, I think you're right there, mate. Um, I think it's the case that yeah, very much Americana till the end. You know, we we are uh, we are the free people. We don't like kneel for anybody kind of attitude, um, which is a bit jarring. It takes you out a little bit, doesn't it? I guess. I don't know. I, I expected that. I thought that they never. There's no way in hell that they're going to surrender here. For, for just for that reason, well, they're trained killers. They're not going to surrender. They'd rather die than surrender. And you see that in in seals over and over again. I mean, like. Or, in Hawaii Five Hours, based around Navy SEALs, and that kind of attitude is even in that. Like, okay, fair. That, that, that's fair. Uh, so yeah, we've just got Mason and Goodspeed left. I'll do my best. Losers always whine about their best. Winners go home and fuck the prom queen. Carla <laughs> was the prom queen. Love that exchange. Yeah, yeah. It's just superb. You finally see Goodspeed get his balls, and it's like, oh, okay, come on, let's do this now. But does he say really as well after that? He says, Carla was a prom queen. He said, really? Really? Yeah, really. (laughs) Raises the eyebrow just to uh, add his emphasis. Yeah, fantastic. So, yeah, we're halfway into the film and we're only getting now to the first rocket. I like this scene where they're in the morgue and you see them shooting at each other um, with with the mercenaries in him. And then when he shoots the, the, what I presume is like an air conditioning unit above the, the soldier and it falls on him and kills him. And then when they're trying to defuse the bomb and his legs twitching, yeah, uh, that really tickled. Yeah. yeah, I've just got. Can you do something with that? Like what? Kill him again? <laughs> yeah, it was a great <laughs> one. Again, it just comes down to their their wonderful, the pattern the two have is just tremendous. 
from this point on, I think the film becomes a bit of a, a cat and mouse. You get this, the waves of mercenaries keep coming at them uh, just to chase the boys, basically, and then they keep beating them away uh, until they succumb to the numbers game eventually and get caught. They get uh, thrown into a prison cell, which they promptly escape from almost as easily as they escape from the prison cell in National Treasure Book of Secrets. <laughs> <laughs> Ed Harris then threatens to attack San Francisco if he doesn't get his money. But he aborts the mission. He actually turns out he hasn't got the cojones to go through with it. He was bluffing all along. The mercenaries then turn on Ed Harris and they take each other out, uh, making the actions of our heroes largely pointless. (laughs) Because had they not have killed the other guys, they may have then been loyal to Hummel and defended off the mercenaries who turned against him. Uh, so yeah they sort of kind of screw things up without uh, intending to unfortunately there's a really good line um, sorry Stuart there's a really good line by um, Ed Harris where uh, they're arguing about um, you know should they fire the rockets they need more time etc and Ed Harris goes um, we bluffed they called it's over and I just thought it's like yes summed it up they've fucked it up and now like what are they (laughs) going to do basically I think it was just a really concise line that just was like Bam, it's all over. And then it builds up the tension between the two parties of mercenaries then really well. Oh, I was just going to say, when, when they, uh, they start the little coup, and it's, it's Ben from A1 and the Candyman, but, but <laughs> looking at each other, kind of thinking, who, who's going to strike first here? And it, 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 it was the smallest curtains I've ever seen on any film ever, that guy. <laughs> They were ridiculous. I mean, I'm pretty sure I had that haircut way back when. I mean, obviously, you wouldn't know that looking at me now. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those are the days. Uh, on the bright side, though, we do now get to possibly the most derided line of the film. Do you like Elton John's song, Rocket Man? I don't <laughs> like soft-ass shit. Oh, well, I only bring it up because it's you. You're the Rocket Man. <laughs> Just... <laughs> Fucking terrible, but <laughs> iconic. I think that's the best way to put it. And also, we get the scene where the Irish fella is fighting Sean Connery, and he calls him an English prick. Did I ever tell you my old man was Irish? Mm. Bear in mind, this is the first time those two have ever met. Why would he have told him that in the, the few seconds that they've got to know him? <laughs> and and also, anyway. yeah, as a Scottish person, the Scottish people I know would tell him to fuck off for calling him English, and rightfully so. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. They win the day. Good speed. Then lets Mason go. Mason finally gives up his secret, which is the microfilm that he hid all those years ago that put him into jail. Now, that microfilm, I like to think that that was the start of a love affair that Stanley Goodspeed had with history. He then changed his name to Benjamin Gates and went on (laughs) to uh, spend the rest of his life trying to find national treasures. That's 100% what I have on my last note is good speed, Ben Gates. <laughs> it's so weird, though, isn't it? What a strange like, end. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God. We're watching the start of Book of Secrets here, aren't we? What's going on here? Yeah, so, so it turns out that The Rock was a prequel to the National Treasure series before we even knew it. <laughs> so I think that brings us on to what we'll talk about, which is going to be the good, the bad and the batshit. So tell me something you liked something that you didn't like or it didn't quite work for you and something that you just thought was crazy. 
It could be good crazy, it could be bad crazy. Uh, I'll kick it off, just so you know what I'm trying to, to get at. So, good. Have you seen the film? It's brilliant. Everything. <laughs> Specifically, like I'm not a massive fan of Michael Bay, generally speaking, as I think I've made quite clear. <laughs> but this is the first time that it wasn't too over the top. It was mostly within the realms of plausibility, and I, I loved it for that. Bad. I've got two bad things. There's not enough John C. McGinley in it for me. I love John C. McGinley. He's one of my favourite character actors. And I think he could have been given a, a meatier role. In fact, they could have had him as Hummel's uh, number two rather than Morse. Uh, I've also got the hairdresser, which we have mentioned. I thought that was quite offensive. And the crazy. According to IMDb, the agent who falsified the claims about the weapons of mass destruction that we then went to a war over... He based the description of the WMDs on the gas from this film. <laughs> so had it not been for this film, we may never have gone to war. So, yeah, I was a bit, that, that's crazy. Um, so, Stu, do you want to give us your good, bad and batshit? Um, the good, it was kind of the same, that it, it was just great. Especially the car chasing, which we said again, sort of national treasure in the the. the possible car chase through london this one seemed a lot more plausible kind of thing especially with the um the trolley as well the trolley coming off its rails i thought that was superb as well and absolutely destroying everything in its path i thought that was really well done and for a film like this and michael bay and explosions blah 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 it was actually i, I was quite i quite enjoyed that part about it um bad just the sheer stupidity of the army again <laughs> and the people in charge of why did it take them so long to get the planes in the air? How, how, how long does that take? Surely you've got them on standby at all times. I know this is pre 9-11, so people were a bit inept. But even so. Um, and the mental was just the fact that he he survived escaping Alcatraz in the first place. <laughs> and then even though he was vaporised, <laughs> He's um, been led to believe that he swam back again. So, <laughs> but yeah, oh, I there think they're really... all, all fair points. But there was a thing of was he actually James Bond? That was another thing that I read that was, there was another fan theory that was he playing James Bond who'd been captured years before? Because <laughs> there was a lot of elements of the way he held him. Obviously, it's Sean Connery, so it will be. But as a Bond lover like I am, and I've watched all of them, he is very, very similar. And if you're locked up for that long, then it is plausible. So it does link to the Bond films and it does link to National Treasure as well. That, are we, yeah. un- are, we, un- are we opening Pandora's box here? What else? <laughs> what, else do we- what else can we find? We're in this shit now. Yeah. Yeah, we are. <laughs> Incredible. So, Matt, where are you going with this? Good. Um, Ed Harris's performance, um, I thought, was excellent, absolutely excellent. And I want to—I know we, we alluded to it earlier. I want to just pick your guys' brains about um, him playing another. Is he? Isn't he a good guy? What are his intentions? Um, kind of character, really. Um, I think he does a really good job of showing like his conflict um, between the um, horrible, you know bombing and was essentially a terrorist activity of, of, of wiping out San Francisco to then um, him diverting the rockets, which felt really like tense, but 
we feel like a payoff for this character that you just don't know. And I think that he really adds an intrigue. I don't know how you guys felt about it, like how early on that you felt, is he actually as much of a wrong one as we think? But I think that the film did a really good job of making us question that and, and, and adding another dimension to a straight up good guys versus bad guys kind of conflict. I think with the, um, with the bot- in the bottleneck was when I thought, for me, he kind of, okay, he's got a bit of morals here. Mm. When he when he told him to stop firing, and that was the first time that he got me. But yeah, you are right. He's got he's a, he's a more obviously he's deeply flawed than he, he's really pissed off with the world, and obviously the, the amount of killing that's gone on in the name of the country and whatever. But he does seem to realise in the end that he, he can't go through with it, and what he has done is wrong. So, I think that I think the fact that he he clearly doesn't actually want to do the thing he's threatening yeah yeah almost makes it then well actually what he's doing is justified um in a in a in a really roundabout way and i don't think there was ever any intention of anybody getting killed or anything like that um and that just makes it just adds another dimension to what could have been just a very um like binary good guys versus bad guys i just thought they did a nice a nice um job of it what did you think andy Exactly that, to be honest. Um, like I said when we were discussing it, it starts with him saying, I'm doing this because of the men that have been lost under my command that you've ignored. Yeah. So he's showing straight out the bat that I'm a good guy, really. I just want these people to get the recognition they deserve. He's mm. not doing it for himself. He's doing it for others. Yeah. So I think straight away we see that this is a man of more depth than your general Michael Bay bad guy. Yeah, exactly. It's um, not it's a, superficial. Yeah, exactly. In terms of my um, in my bad, um, a strange one really for me because as, as a massive music lover, I don't really pay that much attention to the actual score of a film. Um, but I've really found that the score in The Rock um, took me out of the, the film. Um, so Hans Zimmer and Nick Glennie Smith, in times... If I'd have closed my eyes, I thought I was watching Pirates of the Caribbean. There's a, re- it's a really, it's almost like the the music almost felt like I was either watching that or like a fantasy film, like a World of Warcrafty type film, uh, like Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit. I just, it just, it it was just jarring. It didn't have that action feel for me that took me out of of the took me out of the moment a little bit. Um, so that I, I would try and. Not expecting anybody to go re-watch the film again or anything, but just have a listen if you can to, to the score or, or try and get it on YouTube or anything like that. Um, and you might, you might, it might surprise you. You might look at it in a different way. Um, the crazy would literally be, I think it's the second rocket, completely unarmed, no guards, no no <laughs> walk straight up to it and and oh yeah, okay, yeah, we know these these. These um these weapons of mass destruction we'll just we'll just leave them don't worry about it nah don't worry about it I just thought it was really strange and like maybe an oversight <laughs> or just one of those silly things but um yeah it was just uh, not very well planned I never even clocked that but yeah you're spot on with that one uh, but I think you make a very good point about Hans Zimmer actually I find a lot of his films the tropes that he puts in his music are all a little bit too samey for me and. Mm. I don't want to be reminded about Pirates of the Caribbean ever if I can get away with it. (laughs) So, yeah, I think that's a a fair critique of it, to be honest. So we'll we'll answer the two questions that we ask of every Nick Cage film. Did you enjoy this film? Stuart? I absolutely loved it. It was great. It was great fun. It was 
it was t- almost all tick boxes for my kind of, for this kind of film that I love. That it's, it's every single box I love. It. Brilliant, Matthew. Absolutely the same. It, like it almost has no rights to be as good as it was. Like I, I remember watching it years ago and not thinking, you know, not thinking this is fantastic. But I enjoyed every second. I just really enjoyed it. It was a fantastic watch and. Um, and it was really pleasantly surprising and it made me really look forward to then watching Con Air, to be honest, because I thought to myself, I, I didn't give a lot of hope to The Rock before watching it. And then within about five minutes, I was like, oh, actually, we've got something really good on our hands here. Um, and I really enjoyed it. What about you, Andy? I loved it. I yeah. really, really enjoyed it. I think it speaks volumes that this is Michael Bay's favourite film of his own. And it's also Sean Connery's favourite film of his 90s work which included Entrapment, which is a, a good film. So for me, it's, it's two thumbs up all the way. Excellent. And obviously the second question we asked is, based on this film and this film alone, is Nick Cage good or bad? Matt, kick us off. Going to go good on this one. I think he, um, like I mentioned at the very start, he shows a, a lot more charisma. He's obviously been given the chance to be off, uh, off the leash a little. He has a good um internal journey really where he goes from uh quirky um unsure of himself character to one quite like badass at the end but he's very much like a um very much cocooned and then comes out as a beautiful butterfly (laughs) but no i did i I think he did a really good job and um it was nice to see him something that could put his teeth into a little bit excellent we actually get a character arc here don't we yeah yes yeah yeah Stu. What yeah, you, think, you just took the words out of my mouth. You, we, get, we get an actual character arc, and he's believable. I mean, he's it, quite gangly and a bit awkward looking to start with, so you kind of want, you get him, you believe him as a scientist 100%. But he has got a bit of quirk about him. Obviously, the, it's peak Nicholas Cage quirk that we see here. And <laughs> on this, I mean, he's, he's pushing B list for this one. He was, I thought he was really, really good. Mm. No, I agree. Uh, it, it's a definite yes from me. As I said, this film is brilliant and the acting is a big reason why it's so good. So the original screenplay by Michael Bay, apparently it was a much more serious, straightforward movie. But it was the improv that was allowed to guys like Nicolas Cage and Sean Connery, which helped take this film to another level. So stuff like where he says Zeus's butthole rather than shit or whatever. He said because Cage didn't believe that his character would swear. So Cage was obviously invested enough in his character to have this idea of his background. Yeah. And that paid off in making the film a lot better. So, yeah, the acting was brilliant. The film was brilliant. So it's an all-round hell, yeah. Unanimous. Very much so. So that's The Rock. Let's have a quick chat about Con Air. What you looking at, punk? Nothing, I was just admiring your cage. Fits you pretty good. Right, so Conair. The film opens with a montage about the US Army Rangers. They're basically the elite special ops force. A bit like how the SEALs are the best of the Navy. I think the Rangers are supposed to be the best of the Army. So this film at the beginning straight away heavily implies involvement in Iraq for our character. We meet Cameron Poe having returned home to his woman, presumably from Iraq. 
He asks his wife how his baby is doing, and then he's talking to the baby in her stomach. When he bends down to kiss her stomach, you see that she is just washboard flat. <laughs> like, at worst, she's about five hours pregnant. <laughs> if that's his if that's his baby, he's been on like a weekend tour of Iraq. You know, he's not been on several months. Either that or that is 100% not his baby. So then we get a few guys who give him a hassle. Now, I thought that the South were supposed to love their army men, but for some reason, they absolutely hated the sight of him. Mm, they didn't, though. That was a bit weird. I, I didn't quite get that. Obviously, then they attack him outside, a three-on-one attack, and one of them ends up dead. The court then convict him because apparently he's a machine. <laughs> <laughs> he's a dangerous weapon, damn it. Yeah. I thought that was a very, very strange start to the film, if I'm honest. The one thing I did think, and I came up with a bit of a fan theory here, one of those men is the baby's father. That's why they hated him. Because mm. she didn't look pregnant enough to have had his baby when he was last here. Because I presume when you go on tour of um, in the army, it will be for several months. It's six months at least, eh? Uh, that's where I would have thought it would be, at least six months. I mean, you get the rare exception where you get the uh, the lucky ones who don't show till like two, like the, the ones who go the whole term and don't know they're pregnant. But have it on the toilet, like. Yeah, <laughs> it, it it looks like they hadn't got the start of the film made, and they just uh, any old bollocks. I oh, will just put that in. That's why he's locked up. <laughs> That'll do. Just it's get funny. us to the fucking plane. It's funny yeah. that you say that though, because like in the court sentencing, they don't say, and because of your you know many years of service for this country. Nah, fuck it. We'll get it for seven to ten. <laughs> like, like they just—they uh, don't, you know. I think it was a, a strange, a strange way to treat a vet. He's got no record. He's never done anything bad in his life. Is it just defending someone and sticking up for himself? Nah, send you down. It's because he did the old palms and the nose, isn't it? We all know that. That's what they, in primary school and secondary <laughs> school we're told that on the playground. Don't ever it's somebody with palmy you know, you know, it's gonna kill him instantly. Go like their bones are gonna go through the back of their head and shoot out the back. That's like the urban legend. Yeah. But I don't think it helped. Yeah, that skeezy lawyer who had the the slicked back hair who tells him, plead guilty, you'll get four years. So they give him seven, which is a great start (laughs) for him. So we spend a little bit of time in the prison cell with him. And he comes off as a bit of a simpleton, a bit of a dim-witted southern boy who likes to have a chat. We then see his best friend, Bubba Blue. I mean, baby This isn't (laughs) Paris Gump after all, is it? (laughs) For some reason, they've decided to put the three men on the plane. I don't quite get this. This plane is carting the worst of the worst, like the biggest killers, rapists and anything. So they put a man on there who is being set free. And I can say Bubba, Baby O, who is he's obviously like not one of the worst offenders because he's in the same block as Cameron Poe. He's not in the same block as Billy Bedlam, who we'll meet in the beat. <laughs> so it doesn't make sense why they've got the worst of the worst and these two fellas. Mm. No. It, there's, there's cutting costs and there's taking the piss. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. just, to, just to put him on the back of a bus. Oh, no, we'll, we'll put him with the worst of the worst. <laughs> uh, we then meet Vince Larkin, played by John Cusack, who is wearing socks with sandals in the very first thing we see of him. <laughs> Powerful. Yeah, wonderful. Uh, Larkin is in charge of that airplane. Uh, they've put an undercover cop on there, 
apparently they want to get some information out of one of the inmates and they feel this is the best way to do it before the feds come in and, and take all of the uh, all of the glory so once we're on there uh, two inmates talk to poe and he answers them back with some real snarky bullshit like they weren't being mean to him they just asked him a question like dave Chappelle's character pinball mistakes him for somebody else so then cameron poe just responds by being a bit of a twat and B- billy bedlam asks him what are you looking at and he says oh nice cage dickhead or something to that effect like, mate what are you doing just shut up and get home serve your porridge well, keep your head down and like, survive the flight isn't it really but... yeah well that's the thing he, he has he's kept his head down for the seven years or whatever it was that he was inside for he hasn't he's done his time and he's out and now he's acting like a knob yeah <laughs> little boy I mean, genuinely, if he was acting like that in prison, someone would have shivved the prick and he would have <laughs> deserved this. I did really like the interactions between the inmates. Um, I thought it was really realistic and I thought kind of the freak show or the band of freaks of all of those inmates put together was really, really excellent. I, I just thought that the the personalities were really like well, well done. Yeah, yeah. Um. so that actually brings us on to my next point, actually, it was going to be the roll call of inmates. Um, so we meet Billy Bedlam, Cyrus the Virus, Diamond Dog, Pinball, Sally Can't Dance and Johnny 23. Now, is it just me or are these some of the worst stereotypes <laughs> you have ever seen? I thought so you like, were listening off a David Barry album. <laughs> track list then for a second. Diamond, so like, like... Yeah, Diamond Dog obviously was Vince, um, Thing Rames, his character. He plays a militant Nation of Islam style black man. Johnny 23. Obviously, Johnny 23 is a Mexican rapist. (laughs) This is where Donald Trump got like all of his ideas from, I think, about the Mexican rapists. Pinball, and I'm going to quote Cyrus the Virus here, where he says that Pinball is a dirty, two-bit Negro crackhead. And Sally Candance, who is the homosexual character, who the first time she gets off, he gets off the plane, decides to put a dress on. (laughs) <laughs> like you're really stereotyping people here a, a bit like the hairdresser in uh, in the yeah. last film the rock it was a bit oh not, not quite a big fan of that but like you say i did like their interaction and dave Chappelle as pinball especially i thought was fantastic i Apparently, think it's let's say if it it's like it wouldn't surprise you in the slightest if this was the cast of a game that was made, that was made now in a kind of ironic way, mm, but like you said, the, you the Sally can't the Sally can't dance thing. I didn't know if it was a man or a woman. I had no idea. I thought, have the pro woman on here with with a rapist with the, the strangely having a female guard on there as well. Yeah, when you when you've got odd. a rapist, when it, it was nice to see how that you had the rapist was the lowest of the low, and he was uh, he was threatened more than a couple of times straight away. I thought, well, at least at least the, the these people have got morals as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a funny one, isn't it? That like um, almost immediately. I mean, and the, we're, we're we're by no means comparing him to Ed Harris here or anything like that. But when when Cyrus the Virus comes out with, and, and I find rapists the lowest of the low, you just think to yourself, actually, like it sets that he is properly the worst. He, he's the, you know he's the, the biggest rotter of the lot. Um, and obviously, we, as we come to try and find out throughout the film. Mm, yeah uh, but i thought that dave Chappelle, i quite enjoyed his all too brief 
performance, if I'm perfectly yep. honest. I thought he, he could have been in a little bit longer. Obviously, they tried to portray him as, quote-unquote, a dirty two-bit crackhead. But apparently, they just let him impro all of his lines. Really? So, so the fact that he sort of felt like Dave Chappelle was just on this con air, <laughs> he sort of was. And I thought that was brilliant. I thought that really helps get his character over in my eyes. So from this point, the cons immediately take over the plane. Poe has to stop Johnny 23 becoming Johnny 24 when he tries to rape the prison guard. And then they stop off like this is some kind of fucking bush route that they're on <laughs> to pick up more. And some wonderful deus ex machina where there's a sandstorm to help cover their tracks. Now, I'm no aviation expert, but surely landing the plane in the middle of a sandstorm is really dangerous. <laughs> and probably even more so when one of the two pilots is dead. Yeah, with no runway and no guidance system at mm. all. Yeah, that, that was a, a bit of a scene for me, that one was. At this point, though, we do get to meet Garland Green, the most twisted individual of all time. He killed 30 people and he made the Manson family look like the Partridge family. I really, really liked um, Buscemi um, in this. You'd watch him talk all day, couldn't you? Yeah. Like, I'd, I, I mean, it's never going to happen, but could you imagine if they did like a spin-off of his character, um, committing these like really, really violent, horrible acts, but just listening to him talking to his victims and stuff like that. He just, it didn't make proper riveting viewing. Um, I just think mm. he's just really excellent in his delivery, especially, um, especially in this one. And, and uh, you'll cover it a little later on, where it he, he, he just takes you completely out of the film and. and really like uh, starts like questioning the emotions like that you, when you're watching it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm a big fan of Steve Buscemi anyway. I mean, as a human being, he seems like an absolutely incredible dude. So when he uh, when 9-11 happened, he went back to his firehouse and suited up and went to help them. Like, I think he's a, a proper hero off screen and he's mm. just a wonderful actor on screen. So, yeah, all the time in the world for a bit of Buscemi. I mean, in this one, it's because he's got that Bane-style mask on as well. It's just the eyes. As soon as you see the eyes, mm-hmm. it just it looks dead inside. Yeah, it really but, does, uh, doesn't it? <laughs> and I think they did a good job of having Diamond Dog looking scared of him to like yeah. really, uh, ex, you know, make us feel that this is a real sick and twisted individual. That this big bad Diamond Dog is scared of this guy. Absolutely, it puts him over like hellaciously. It was mm-hmm. fantastic. Uh, so then. Larkin discovers in Cyrus's cell that there's books on how to fly a plane. (laughs) (laughs) In Cyrus's cell is a camera. We know this because we see through the camera and the hole in the wall is on camera. How on earth did he manage to hide this book in a hole in the wall without being seen? Surely, like, no one is monitoring those cameras in that prison. That's that's a big issue for that prison. (laughs) But obviously he finds out... And it's all too late. The cons manage to get away before they, they're stopped. Whilst travelling onto their rendezvous point, they find there's a problem with the landing gear. So Poe and Diamond Dog go underneath the plane and they discover Pinball tangled up in the landing gear. Pinball snuck off to hide the transponder, but didn't make it back in time. Now, when I looked on Wikipedia, apparently this was a $75 million budget. But you know what they didn't spend any money on? was the dummy of Dave Chappelle that was, <laughs> was trapped in the, the gear. It wasn't even the same skin colour for a start. It was awful. 
Pinball, who was then thrown out of the plane, and fortuitously, he didn't land on any trees, any buildings or anything. He managed to just fall onto this car 30,000 feet below, which led me to another YouTube rabbit hole of what would happen to a human body if it fell from a plane. So apparently, if you want to survive, gents, from falling from a plane from 30,000 feet, what you, yeah, what you need to do... <laughs> Right, it'll take you about 170 seconds to fall. You'll probably pass out for about a minute due to low oxygen and it being very cold, but you will wake back up as you're falling. You'll hit terminal velocity after about 1,500 feet. And when you land, try and land like with your knees bent so that you'll crumple and it will keep all of your organs safe. You'll still die, to be perfectly honest, but your organs will be safe. So It's so, it's so funny that because... Remember when you were young, you were told like these things that you need to make sure that you do and they've never, ever, ever come to like any use. Number one, if you're going to fall from a great height into water, you need to put your arms out and make yourself as small an object as possible. And number two, how to survive quicksand as if we've all as if we're, <laughs> as if we're spending our entire lives stepping from quicksand to quicksand. Yeah, like the films of the 80s have not set us up for life because as far <laughs> as I was concerned, quicksand was everywhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I've never seen any, ever. I'm, I'm, to be honest, I'm a little bit disappointed in that. The worst that's ever happened to me, I've, I've, got, I've been in a, a lot of mud over Bantock Park. That's, that's literally how <laughs> it is. Yeah, it's not quite the same, is it, Vass? <laughs> oh, yeah, but obviously as well, the other thing that would happen once you hit the ground, especially... A car, a metal car and concrete, <laughs> is your body would be ripped apart. That didn't happen to Pinball. So luckily, the message that was written on his T-shirt was perfectly intact for them to read. That was a stroke of luck, wasn't it? <laughs> After being a dick to Billy Bedlam, Poe has further words with him, causing Bedlam to go under the plane and go through Poe's belongings. This is where we get the immortal line, put the bunny back in the box. <laughs> After instructing him what to do they have a little bit of a scrap and poe kills another man in self-defense according to some sources that i've seen online apparently this was all entirely nick cage's doing he came up with so many ideas on how to flesh out poe's character so that bunny was actually nick cage's idea that was supposed to represent how he tries to protect the women in his life so you see it obviously trying to protect um, his his wife trisha and how he tries to protect um, the, the prison guard, who I think is also called Sally, if I remember correctly. So that was where that came from. And also the fact that Cage was supposed to, or Cameron Poe was from Alabama, was Nick Cage's idea. So he went to then live in Alabama in order to perfect the accent. A task I would say he failed miserably in. Because <laughs> that it accent just, was awful. It's just, it, it sounds like... Like the rest, it just sounds like a stereotype, like the rest of the film. Mm, massively so. So the plane finally arrives at the rendezvous point, where they were supposed to change planes, and they waited about five minutes, and then decided, no, no, we need to carry on. Like at least give them half an hour. Come on, <laughs> this is ridiculous. And I think now they're off the plane. This is where we get to what Matt mentioned earlier about Garland Green, Steve Buscemi. So we know that this character's a murderer. Even to quote him, that he killed a young girl and wore her head like a hat. <laughs> I don't know how that works, if I'm perfectly honest. Surely it would just keep falling off. 
at this juncture of the film, we see he has a few lines where he has a tea party with this four or five year old girl in a drained out swimming pool. In this scene where Garland Green meets the, the young girl, obviously we're all led to believe he's going to kill her. Mm. We, this is what we know about him, that he doesn't care. He's He wants to kill anything and everything. So this scene is so, it's so tense because we're looking at it through the, the eyes of this killer. And all you see is this innocent child singing. He's got the whole world in his hands. And it's it's quite a mind fuck this scene is, I think, because you, you're on such unsure footing whether or not we should be terrified or see his humanity. What do you guys it's, think? It's completely at odds with the rest of the film. It's like it's from a different film altogether. The mm. whole scene. It's just weird. Well, I, I was just... I, I, I thought, well, it's cut away and we cut back and he's going to have a head on in his hand, literally in his hands. I thought that's where he's going to be. And then for it not to happen, I thought, what? Well, the the only point where I actually think thought he was going to do it is when they cut to the first person view of him and she's kind of swaying a bit backwards and forwards and it's all a bit distorted. And I thought, hmm, they're setting it up here that he's going to have butchered her or, or something like that. But it's... um. Because we know he's like an intelligent guy and we know that he's like, you know, um, it, it really was easy. Is he isn't is he isn't he? And it was really, really tense. Um, and then when you see him walk away with the doll, you think to yourself, mm. ah, like, you know, he's done the, done the worst thing possible. And it was it was really tense. And singing that like he, um, he's got the whole world in his hand, which is the creepiest fuck song to begin with. <laughs> um, just like heighten that, to be honest. Yeah, very much so. I thought that was a, a really well done scene. And obviously when he then gets back onto the plane, as you say, with that doll, we see that he's left her alive. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, she's probably in a worse position than had he have killed her when considering <laughs> she was just playing in a drained out pool in the middle of nowhere on her own. <laughs> her life must have been the shits anyway. So it turns out that the plane where they're rendezvousing was there all the time waiting for Sendito. But this plane was hiding from the other cons. So the plan all along was just to rescue their their brother and everyone else can do one. So we get a bit of a skirmish as the cops finally arrive. Now, I quite enjoyed this scene again. There was a lot of ten- tension that was built up when they were they were pushing the guards through. the, uh, the There was the, the runway of all of the, the burnt out cars and everything. And they were going to trap them off and... And do them all in. And then also at the same time that that was happening, you had Johnny 23 trying to rape the guard. And Baby O was getting closer and closer to death because he hadn't got his insulin jab yet. So I thought everything that was going on in that scene, the tension that was building up was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yep, agreed. I thought that was probably the scene of the film for me, that one. It all, it, at this point, though, I did feel that this was building up to the point where it's going to end momentarily. But we did go on a little bit longer, which I thought was strange. I felt that they could have left it here, but it's almost like this was a false ending. And then we got another 20 odd minutes. Yeah, I completely agree with you, mate. Like that, that was my, when when he jumped, um, when Poe jumps on the motorcycle and starts the chase, I just thought this, it it was such a shame because it really lost me there. Like I was just like, it just could have been really organically ended and had the happy ending. And and then, but then they shoehorn this little bit in um, that just lost it for me in a, in a way. Just felt like Poe's Poe's done his bit. 
he's, he's you know, there's no need for him to risk his life anymore. And and they loosely base it on the fact that that Cyrus said he was going to molest or hurt his daughter. Um, and he just felt like it just felt added on, like it just wasn't needed. Mm. Stu, what what are you your thoughts? Do you think this could have been a, a natural ending? I mean, we were an hour and hour and thirty, hour and forty in at this point. Um, I think it just because of it was only a year and a half in. I thought if it if you'd have ended it like that, I still I, I still thought there was more to come. I was still I was still fully invested in the whole nonsense of it all. I mean, we didn't even mentioned um, John Cusack whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and I thought he was he, apart from his weird his weird attire. I thought that like that little play with the the car and his um, his idiot boss and yeah. who given who put the gun on the plane in the first place. I thought that little side story of their little uh, say it worked quite well. Um, but now I was waiting for something else to kick in. From personally, I was I was waiting for more. But okay. by these by these points, I'd give up all hope of it making any sense at all. Anyway, so <laughs> yeah, it, it was a bit off the wall. I personally felt that they could have ended it in the uh, in in the, the junkyard. They could have built up to something there and finished it there and rounded everything off. But I think that's a fair assessment. There was still a bit more story to tell. I just don't know why they had to get back on the plane and fly to Vegas to tell it. Agreed. Mm, Apparently, it, it was supposed to end at. Um, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, the White House. <laughs> so the scene that goes to Vegas is supposed to go to Washington, D.C. So the cons manage to get back onto the plane and get away. Cyrus realises that somebody was trying to sabotage them from within and Baby-O takes the rap for that and gets shot. Where really, we know that it was Cameron Poe. This scene was very much like when Bubba died in Forrest Gump. <laughs> I don't know how many times I can see Benjamin Buford Blue. Um, it, it purely was. Arms. He yeah. was dying in his arms, crying. Like honestly, if he pulled out some fucking shrimp, it would have been bang on. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so we get the scene where they're all partying to Leonard Skinner, with the famous line by uh, Garland Green, defying irony: a bunch of idiots dancing on a plane to a song made famous by a band that died in a plane crash. Also, that was excellent. Yeah, it yeah. was great. So obviously once the traitor's been found out and Poe finally decides that now is the time to take action because he wants to prove to Bubba that there is a god. Like, weird. Okay, whatever. Uh, And they manage to bring the plane down on the busiest strip of road in the entire world. (laughs) And it travels down that road for a good mile or so as well without hitting a single car or anything. Just mental. Absolutely mental. So then... They manage to get off the plane. They go through this wild ride through Vegas and Poe finishes off Cyrus the virus and is reunited with his wife and kid. The film ends with Garland Green at the craps table about to roll the dice, saying that he feels lucky. So, right. <laughs> the good, the bad and the batshit. Matt, do you want to kick us off this time? Good. Um, and while you mentioned like the... Um the characters being very stereotypical of like certain races, etc. I think I mentioned it earlier. I like, I just enjoyed the freak show of all of those people in one place and how inevitably it will all go absolutely tits up. Like that, that people can't coexist who are so tapped and so um, violent and these career criminals. And I just think they did a really good job of um, showing 
that these people just cannot coexist and they're and they are just scumbags at the end of the day and every one of them bar green gets their comeuppance um which i just find it strange um you know we we, we see quite like gratuitous deaths for a lot of the characters um where they just get killed in these really elaborate ways and i just think it was a really good like it was silly like it it, it takes a lot sometimes for me to be out of the moment in a film but you needed it for this film because it was so silly at times <laughs> but i just think they did a good job of this kind of gaggle of of weirdos that they all put in one place and then, and then the inevitable outcome of it all um in terms of a bad and i'm gonna have to disagree with you Stu, on one thing i thought kuzak's character was just just did absolutely nothing for me he just felt like a bit of a bumbling um like i mentioned mr bean last week it felt like just a bit of like just a bumbling character that didn't really add a lot and like that that just didn't really impact as much as it could have and you know we we have like cops and in these scenarios that are a lot stronger in in roles in other films where we know that they're um you know gonna assist the the hero themselves but i just thought he just felt weak just felt weak for me didn't really add a lot to the film um i don't know what do you guys think i'm i'm off the ball there andy what do you think in regards to q um to cusack he kind of just spent his his time chasing his tail yeah he didn't yeah. he didn't impact the film all that much and from what i gather I think he probably agrees because he won't talk about Conair in any of his interviews really? now. Yeah, he refuses yeah. To, to mention it. So I think I am kind of leaning to yourself. Mm. I mean, I'm not saying that he was good. <laughs> <laughs> but he was, I just thought he was more like the, the, the comic relief than anything else in a, in a pretty stupid film anyway. Um, I do agree he, he didn't need to be there. And the whole thing with it, with a nice car and him being the, I don't even know what he was supposed to be doing or why he was in charge because he, he looked about 12 years old. But <laughs> <laughs> I just, uh, for me, I mean, for me personally, in the, my love of nonsense, that he was just, he was that side of it where you had, mm. he was kind of like a, a side story more than anything else. Because I think you would have got the, the scene with his wife and daughter either, which yeah. we, we didn't even mention it again. Um, <laughs> That, that's fair that's fair and, and that it, well, seems a bit weird i'm going to contradict myself here now anyway because the crazy um is the fact that this film becomes harry potter and the chamber of secrets with a flying car <laughs> <laughs> which, is, which is just obviously just really strange and, and it, it kind of was like okay they get oh no they are going with that okay that's um that's a flying car okay that's where we are with this um i just thought it was i, just thought it was, I mean it was funny and it was it, it was comic relief to be fair um and i, I actually that bit was was a bit of a a sidestep from some of the more serious bits of the film, like, i.e., rape and murder and pillage and everything else. So, um, but yeah, to to have um, to have the Chamber of Secrets for a, a short period of time was quite entertaining. Stu, what are you going with for your good, bad, and batshit? Um, I think the good and the the batshit kind of get together. That it was more just mental action all over the place. <laughs> I mean, even the bit with I mean, just you'd you'd never in a million years get authority. I'll oh, let the plane land on that road. You just shoot it at the sky, mm. over over the desert. 
and just take the hit on, oh, we'll kill some criminals and a couple of people and we'll we'll, we'll honour them later. That, that's what would happen. You wouldn't put that many people in danger. But I think the whole, even after that, when it turned into a, like a lorry chase <laughs> and there was really yeah. bad 90s CGI all over the place. And well, fair play, I mean, it, as, an, as an action film, it was fun and entertaining in, the, in that kind of way. Um, the bad that none of it made it, it didn't really make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you got that, you know, I've mentioned it there about the Sally can't dance as well and the whole cross dressing thing, and there was no point in it whatsoever. Mm. And if there was someone like that, they would have absolutely 100% have been raped on the plane. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think it was just, it was one of the things that you, as soon as it, as soon as he was sentenced to seven years, or eight years at the start, I know what this is. And in a bit of context, this was one of the first films I bought on DVD as well when I had a PS2 in 2000. In 2001, when I bought a load of my favourite action films, I thought, oh, cool, super crisp quality. I know what I'll, I'll start with. And it was The Matrix <laughs> and Con Air. <laughs> and for the, for the spectacle, it was fun. It, it don't take itself too seriously. And it just, it's just enjoyable. Um, so the so the good and the bad kind of are the same, but just from yeah. different perspectives. It, it sounds like it stretched your your believability to the breaking point. Yeah, yeah. If you if yeah. you took it as if you took it as a serious film, you'd give it like oh, no, we'll come on to this later, you give it a bit two out of ten. But there was there mm-hmm. was there was a lot more good. Oh no, we've, we've it sounds like we've kind of slated it here, but there was a lot more good than bad for me. That's fair. That's fair. So my answer, um, the good, I've already mentioned Dave Chappelle. Big fan of Dave Chappelle. He's probably the best stand-up comedian working today. He's incredible. But, again, I mentioned that the the characters, the the BAME and gay characters representation was the drizzling shits. It was awful. And I want to give a bit of mention to Malkovich because it's a bit of both. Because I think that in a, in a film with some of the most scenery-chewing actors, he was far and away the most mental of all of them. <laughs> it was quite incredible, and that was both good and bad. I felt that, in parts, he was a little bit too much. So, like, and this isn't his fault, this is the writing. But when they finally kill him off, he dies, like, four times. <laughs> so he gets thrown through the building, still alive, lands on the uh, electrics as he's falling, still alive, obviously falls onto the ground, still alive, <laughs> and then he gets crushed under the hydraulic thing. So, like, he has four things that would conceivably have killed him. <laughs> that that was a bit too much. You can't I, kill a you can't kill a virus, is what it is, that's man. That's it. Oh. <laughs> See what I did there? <laughs> yeah. Do you like that? I like that. <laughs> and apparently, uh, John Malkovich is another person who will not discuss this film in interviews. So he must not particularly like his uh, his time here. He says that he doesn't understand what his character did in the movie. Like, he's read the script and he doesn't understand. <laughs> and the crazy for me, in an interview, Danny Trejo was asked, who was the scariest man on set? And his, and his answer was, and I will quote this, Kuzak is one bad motherfucker. So John Kuzak was the scariest person on set. Wowzers. So, yeah. Apparently, that's he's the got first, crazy eyes. That's the first time we've even mentioned Danny Trejo. 
Well, we mentioned Johnny Twenty Three, but yeah, D- Danny Trejo. Yeah. I-, I do love uh, Danny Trejo. He's he's another guy. He always plays bad guys, but he's always a bad guy with a heart. So it's kind of weird to see him just play a straight up bastard. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now he's doing Animal Crossing on Twitch. <laughs> Good God. <laughs> So, the two questions that we ask on every film. Firstly, did you enjoy this film? I'll kick this one off. Yeah, I did. It was mental. (laughs) It was mental, but it was the right side of crazy that you can just switch off and let it go. There were other films that, like The National Treasure, especially the first National Treasure, that wasn't crazy enough for me where I can just let it slide. This one definitely was. Stu, did you like the film? I loved it. <laughs> it was it was total nonsense from start to finish. It knew what it was, and from that from it was a lot sillier than I remembered. Mm. That was that was one thing that struck me. I, I remember it being a, a really good entertaining film, but I didn't remember it being as mad as it was. Yeah, I, I thought exactly the same. To be honest, I haven't seen it for a good at least a decade, so it it, it did surprise me. Matt. What are you saying? Yeah, yeah, to be fair. I mean, I don't think it's quite in the same um, category in terms of how good the film is as um, as The Rock, but as an enjoyment spectacle, I really enjoyed it. Um, I thought it was from pretty, you know, pretty high octane pretty much all the way through, and um, it kind of just itches that chaotic part of the back of my brain where I just want to watch something blow up and watch something violent and gratuitous so yeah for me really enjoyed it and um you know it won't be years and years until i watch it again like it has been this time yeah it brings out the uh, neanderthal man in you i think certainly does mate yeah absolutely (laughs) and of course the other question is based on this film and this film alone nick cage good or bad Matt, you can kick us off this time. <laughs> um, I, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna say yes. On, I didn't think his accent was quite as bad as yourself, um, and I think he, like the delivery of his lines, whilst dickish in his nature and in context, I thought were delivered quite well. Um, and I, I, yeah, it's, it's a tough one. Like, w- would this win any kind of um, award for acting? No, but. I think he had enough of that quirkiness and enough of like a, a cocky Nick Cage that it ticked some of those boxes for me. So I'm going to say, uh, I'm going to say yes on this occasion. That's fair. Jim? I think he sounded more like Alpha from Walking Dead. <laughs> what do you say? Yes, true. Yeah. My daughter. <laughs> kind of, that's all I could think of as soon as he started talking. I thought, this is what this, this sounds like. Um, but apart from that weirdness, I thought he did a good job. Again, that, the first National Treasure is so far the worst one for this mm. in this this uh, rating scheme. But yeah, he did a good job. So yes, I I say yes as well. Um, let, let's be perfectly honest. This is a B movie. There's no depth to this film, so I don't need to see a Nick Cage level of um, like leaving Las Vegas, for example, like an Oscar-winning performance. I just need someone who I can root for. And that's exactly what Cage gave me in this film. Yeah. And as we mentioned on the, the last picture pod we did, where we were discussing the uh, the Book of Secrets, we want a bit of Crazy Cage. And I think this might be the film where it tipped over from good with a bit of ca- crazy to actually I can just do outright mental performances. 
this was the tipping point and I loved it for it. I thought it was absolutely great. Right, so that's the second of our picture pods done. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed watching these absolutely great American classics. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Please remember to subscribe and if you can, rate and review. Uh, as we said before, we'll leave we'll even read out some of the, uh, the the reviews on future pods. If you like what we do, please tell a friend. You can follow us on Twitter at CageFightingPod. Email us with anything at all and you can get us on CageFightingPod at gmail.com. Matt, would you like to say goodbye? Ciao, Bella. Stu, would you like to say goodbye? Put the bunny in the box. And from me, I'd just <laughs> like to say, it's you. You're the rocket man. See ya. <laughs> <laughs>